Well, today we uh, are finishing up our series, uh, suit, suit Up. And uh, someone said uh, this morning, you're still in Ephesians chapter 6. I said, yep, we sure are. So anyway, this is where we find the complete armor of God. I will say this, uh, someone in the room, I think it was Ron Wood, uh, got me this uh, little coin that you can keep in your pocket reminding you about the whole armor of God. And it's pretty interesting, just, uh, the scripture passages on there, and then it talks about the different pieces. Uh, if you would like one of these, uh, I can probably get you these if you want them. If you want them as a reminder, just email me and I'll take care of that for you. So, no, no, you'll have to pay, but I'll get it for you, okay? <laughs> but, but anyway, all right. If you will, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to continue uh, to look there this morning uh, as we continue the series. Well, in Ephesians chapter 6, I do want to. This will be the last time you have to hear all this, but Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places." Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the two, the last two, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Look at the introduction there on your outline. The helmet and the sword of the soldier were very important in the first century battle. The helmet protect, literally protected the abilities of the soldier. I want you to think about the helmet, the placement is there. Uh, if he was to take a strike to the head, it, it, it could kill him, of course. But not only that, it could stun him for a while, uh, could cause major problems in his ability to defend himself. And so it's very important for, as it relates to the helmet. While the sword enabled the soldier to have victory over their appoint, uh, opponent. So the first thing I want us to look at this morning is the helmet of salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7 again. And take the helmet of salvation. So if you look here on the picture, you'll see this is uh, possibly a helmet that uh, Roman soldiers have used over the years. Uh, this is one uh, very simplistic. I think sometimes we see the ones that look so nice and regal and all that. But most of the soldiers would be wearing something like this. Now, for obvious reasons, the Roman soldier did wear this helmet. And the helmet was made of feather, of leather and brass and lined with either felt or a sponge for comfort and a tight fit. It's, it's amazing. You know, it's like, a, I guess, a, a helmet you would use in football. Uh, but it would be something that would have to be stable. And so we see the importance of this. So what does all this mean? How, how does all this play into it? What is the importance of the helmet? And the big thing we got to look at is the helmet of salvation. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. Hold your place here. Turn to Romans chapter 5. While you turn, I kind of have an illustration of what this could look like. Uh, when I was in the seventh grade, uh, some of you have heard this story before. My uncle 
uh, had uh, complete football pads that, was, that were out in the garage area of where my grandparents lived. And, and, and I would go and I would look, I would look what's in there. It looked like a toy box, basically. But I would lift it up and there, were the, there was this helmet, there was these shoulder pads, the pants, everything that you, what I thought you would need to protect you if you were a football player. And so as young as fifth grade, I would, I would, you know, ask my grandparents, can I have this? Well, you have to ask your uncle. My uncle gave them to me. And I thought I had the real deal. I mean, I was so impressed with this. I liked the way I looked in the, in the, in the you know, made my shoulders broad. You know, the helmet, I thought I was someone. And so then we, we get to seventh grade, and I decide, how many of you when it was, knew when it was called junior high, not middle school? Back in our day, it was junior high. And I remember trying out for the junior high football team. And so I go the first day of practice, and, and you're going to be so disappointed in me and think a lot less of me after this story. But, but I remember going on the football field, and, and I walked out there for the first time, and I was completely in uniform. The helmet, the shoulder pads, everything you needed. I walked out onto the field. Everyone was looking at me. Some were laughing. Others, I think, were very intimidated. I'm not sure. But, but, but I walk out there, and, 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 the, and, the, and the coach said, Son, um, number one, we haven't handed out equipment yet. Number two, we're not going to hand it out for another week. Okay, so you can take all that off. And so I took it all off and all that. So then came the next week when it was time to suit up. And so they came around with the equipment. I said, no, thanks. I have my own. And uh, so, so I get out there. And the first drill, one of the first drills we do, some of you have been in football, you know, you have to line up on each side. You have to run and hit each other. Okay? So I go, and I'm ready. I'm ready. I've got, I've got the equipment. I go, and I hit. And as soon as I hit, the helmet cracks right down the center. And I was like, huh, what is wrong with this? Well, come to find out, I decided to take the equipment they wanted me to have at this point, and I started realizing what I had was nothing more than a toy. <laughs> the real thing was what was going to have to protect me. So the moral of the story is you got to have the right kind of equipment when you play football, and also when you battle the enemy himself. So look at the helmet of salvation. Three aspects to our salvation. First of all, there's the past, and it speaks of security. And the big word there is justification. Now, justification, if you've heard us teach around here any length of time, you hopefully know what it means. It means that we've been made right before God because of what Jesus did on our behalf. Okay, That's the big word for that. We've been made right before God by way of Jesus Christ. So, the past reality of our salvation is delivered, delivered us from the penalty of sin. So, if we weren't made right before God, we wouldn't have right standing with God. And according to Scripture, we would be objects of wrath. But now that we've been made right with God, we have eternal security in the fact, based on what Jesus did on our behalf, by us coming to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so therefore, you have the idea of justification. But what does it sound like in Scripture? So look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we've been made right. What was the path to being made right? It came by way of Jesus. We're going to see this in a moment. But it came by our faith. There was a faith component, okay? Justified by our faith, we have peace. That means we're not in battle with God. 
And it says, through or by means of our Lord Jesus Christ. So all this was made possible by what Jesus did. Verse 2, through whom also we have access by faith. That means we have our connection to his salvation is coming by faith into this grace. That means that grace that Jesus purchased for us on the cross, that grace that was extended to us, it says, in which we stand. It's the same terminology we're reading about in Ephesians chapter 6. Stand, stand. It's foundational to our life. Okay? It's very foundational. In which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. In verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So this whole means of justification, this whole means of what our salvation actually means, there came a point where our faith was inactive because, or active because of our repentance of our sin. We turn to God by faith. As a result, that faith executes us into what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf through grace. And now we stand right before God, but not only that, the Holy Spirit now dwells in us all by way of the love of God. All by way of that. And so that's what we look at when we look at salvation. We look at the past as it relates to that. But then the helmet of salvation, there's a present aspect to it. And that speaks of process. And that's the whole idea of sanctification. Sanctification is merely setting something apart. Moving it from here to here. So we're being moved as a, based on our justification. We're now being made, we are now being moved to what God desires in us. To set us apart to be his people. Okay? So the present reality of our salvation frees us from the power of sin. You read Romans carefully and what you'll find is we don't have to live having to give in to the flesh all the time. There's a power within us that comes by way of the Holy Spirit that he gives us to overcome sin. Now, what does that look like in Scripture? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Paul's saying this to the church there. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because from the beginning chose you for salvation through how? Sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So, the truth, understanding the truth, by seeing the truth, we repented of our sins. By faith, we moved into the arena of our sanctification where God is setting us apart, okay, to make us in the likeness of himself, okay, in the likeness of Jesus. But it came by way of the Spirit working in our lives and us accepting his truth. Truth is very important when it comes to sanctification, okay? But then there's a future aspect to our salvation. And that speaks of victory. And the big word there is glorification. And we talked a little bit about this not long ago. But it's that idea that one day we're going to stand before God. And we're going to be complete. That, that right now, here's what you can understand about your salvation. Not only were you saved. He's doing a work in you that is a process. But there's a day coming in the future where that work will become completed completed when we see him face to face based on the authority of scripture so what do we see 
The future reality of our salvation will remove us from the presence of sin and the battle itself. That's what we need to be celebrating here today. That the battle will eventually come to an end. But here's what's amazing about the battle we're in right now. Here's what's amazing about it. We already have victory. There's already victory in the battle that we're in. But yet it has not yet been realized. It was realized through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the full completeness of that victory is still to come. But guess what? It still means, however, that we can walk today, how? In victory. In victory. We don't have to give in to those things uh, that, that, uh, of the enemy. So 1 Peter chapter 1 says this. So prepare your minds for action. Be completely sober, in spirit, steadfast, self-disciplined, spiritually and morally alert. Fix your hope completely on the grace of God that is coming to you. This is talking about is coming when Jesus Christ is revealed. So what's he saying? The process, justification to sanctification is going to be completed when we see Jesus face to face. Okay? So the bottom line, look here on your outline. The helmet of salvation is a picture of hope and assurance that comes from focusing on our ultimate salvation, that we will be delivered from this battle. Okay? Now, secondly, we have the sword of the Spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Again, the last part of verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God. Now, I have a couple of things I want to show you this morning. Uh, many of you have seen pictures of Roman soldiers uh, where they have the shield and they have some kind of spear. Have you, have you ever seen a picture like that? That's, that's really how they went in the battle. Uh, they went in. Now, we don't have any talk of the spear here in this context. But what they had was the shield. And what they would do is as the enemy was approaching or as they approached the enemy, they would throw the spear. Okay. Sorry, Delore. They would throw the spear and, and, and hopefully uh, at least help them in the battle as it goes. But then they had the sword. Okay. Vanna, would you come up, please? <laughs> this, is, this is Vanna, and she'll be showing us the sword today. Many of you have asked the question on many occasions, who is this woman you speak of so often? This is her. She's the one that threw away the trophies. No. Yes, That's yes. It's a good thing you didn't have yes. that to away. Yeah, I, I was a little scared when you brought it up here. So anyway, this is my wife, Tina. Some of you are like, I never, I never, I've never seen your wife. I, this is her, so this is what you get here. All right, appreciate it. Thank you, Vanna. Appreciate that. All right. This is the sword, the sword of the Spirit. Now, uh, what's amazing about this is the, what we believe the handle was made out of some kind of, uh, and this is the actual way it probably looked. You can see it there on the screen. That's actually the sword with a picture. You have bone here, and then you have a very sharp blade. It is two-sided, okay? That's familiar. And it can be used, this gets kind of graphic, for piercing and slicing, it can do both ways, okay? So I don't want to be on the other end of this because it is. It's, it, it can be a, a dangerous uh, weapon, as you can see. Now, this actually is called the Roman gladius. And most of the, most of the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, would have used something like this. And as I said, it's for piercing and slashing. Now, 
the first thing that comes to my mind when I see this or hear about this is the whole idea of Hebrews chapter 4. Look what it says. For the word of God is living and active. Now think about that. It's living and active. It's operational. It never quits being operational. Isn't it amazing how we can look at, a doc, at documents that were, that were written thousands of years ago when you're talking about the Old Testament and then the New Testament? Isn't it amazing how those things speak to our hearts today and have the ability to be used by the Spirit of God to transform us? Isn't it amazing that, that when we look at the Word of God today, that things that scientists have not discovered until recently were right there in God's Word all along? Isn't that amazing how all these things are? So God's word, according to the writer of Hebrews, it is living and it's active. It's not just something that was written long ago for the, for the person back then. It continues to be a piercing word for us. And then it says this, it's living and active and full of power, making it op op operational, it energizes, it, uh, it's very effective is what it's saying. And then it says, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, what I just showed you. Now, now, keep in mind, they didn't have bombs, air force, submarine. They didn't have any of that back then. This was the weapon. This is what was used, okay? Guns, they didn't have anything like that. So when Paul's looking, or when the writer of Hebrews is looking at this closely, he's using that most powerful thing that they had in that day, and he says it's sharper than a two-edged sword, penetrating or piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit. Now think about that. When he gets into the talk of the soul and the spirit, he's talking about the completeness of a person. The completeness of a person. And of both joints and marrow. That means the deepest parts of our nature. Exposing and judging the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what this word is capable of doing. It's capable of doing this. Now, let me just say this. When, when all stand before God in the future, and it's coming, by the way. And many say we're getting really close. And one day we're going to stand before him. Guess what will be opened? Guess what will be the judge for all? His word. The authority of his word. The same thing he's talking about right here. And we may, we may be able to fool all the people around us. We, we may be able to fool those who are closest to us. But it is that word that deep down should be exposing ourselves. And it one day will judge us. But not only that, it's also a tool to help us today, to help us today. How, how many of you um, sometimes are shocked at where your flesh will take you sometimes? I mean, I mean th that's hard to admit, isn't it? But sometimes I'm shocked. I mean, for some of you, it may be anger that just kind of gets out there. For others of you, it may be some, some, a path that you've taken, and you're like, uh, I've said of many people, I never dreamed I was capable of doing this. And, and, but here's what the Word of God can do. It can draw you back in. It can convict you. It can help you see what's missing. And that's what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 is trying to get you to see. It shows us what is missing. What is missing? What needs to be fixed? 
where our attention needs to be when it comes to our relationship with God himself. And so the Hebrews is talking about a work in the deepest parts of a person. And it's so important that we understand that because of what I'm getting ready to mention now. There are two words for word in Greek, in the Greek, that have different meanings. There's the word logos. I've shared this with some of you before. Logos is the total revelation of God to a general audience. Okay? So when we say the word of God, okay, if you were living in the first century, they would be talking about the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, if you're living in the day we're living, we're talking about this being logos. These are the words of God. Okay? So we see that. But then there's something called rhema. Okay? It's a specific revelation of God to an individual or a group. All right? I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at how this could play out. Hold your place there. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Okay? Now, as you turn, I want you to listen to this. This is so important we get this. This may be one of the most important things you can hear. Both Logos and Rhema are both the Word of God. But Logos is God's Word recorded for all in the scriptures, in the Bible. While rhema is the word of God spoken to us at a specific occasion or a specific need. So, a passage of the Logos can move into being what's called rhema. So, I have the Logos and I'm reading the Logos. Okay, I'm reading Logos. But there may be something that's said there that all of a sudden becomes rhema because I see it. God gives me that word. How many of you are familiar with what I'm talking about? He gives you a word from his word. Okay? That's rhema. When he's speaking to your heart. Now, Jesus gave a parable that seems to speak about the differences between the two and how they apply to us. Now, I, I believe this because of the way it's written. And, and I think it's an interesting point. In Luke chapter 8, I want you to look at verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. Now, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. You know, that's what it is. An earthly story, so we can relate, that has a heavenly meaning. God spoke about the mysteries of heaven through parables. Okay, that's how he, he communicated. He does it here. So here's this parable. A sower, or a farmer, went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some... Now let me go ahead and tell you. He's going to tell us a bit, but you need to understand it now. Seed represents the Word of God. Go ahead and get that in your head. And so he sowed some seed, and it fell by the wayside. And it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some seed fell on rock. And as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Verse 7, and some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others' seed fell on the ground, good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop of a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he then cried out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know what he was saying in that phrase? He's saying, don't just hear these words, receive these words. 
He who has an ear, let him hear. That's what he's saying. He's emphasizing. Jesus says that a lot in, in the Gospels. So his purpose in saying that is, I don't want you to just have a little more head knowledge. I want you to welcome what I'm telling you. Make it a part of who you are. And that's what we're called to do when it comes to his word, when it comes to the sword of the spirit. Okay? That is our only hope in the battle. And so he's saying all that. All right? Then his disciples asked him, saying, what does this parable mean? And he said, to you it has been given to know. Now, the word know, that means you are getting ready to get the meaning. You're going to know what I'm talking about. You're receiving the words. You'll know it when you receive it. The mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables. It's just a story. That means this. That there is a difference between just the story of itself. There's an even bigger meaning when that story becomes a part of our story. You, you see what I mean? So he's trying to make the difference here. That seeing that he may not see and hearing that they may not understand. So then he goes on and tells about the parable, verse 11. Now the parable in this, the seed is the word of God. I already gave you that. Those by the wayside, those seed by the wayside, are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes, takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. He, he's saying that there's seeds that are being scattered that can bring salvation, but the devil intervenes. He'll intervene. But here's what you got to understand about this. A lot of this going back and forth about whether the seed, the seed's always good. You need to keep that in mind. You understand the seed is always good, okay? You can't blame it on the seed, but it goes by the wayside. Then he goes on, he says this, but the ones, the seed on the rock, are those when they hear, receive the word with joy, and those who have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. It's basically someone who says, you know something? I hear the word of God. Yes, I hear Jesus died for my sins. I hear all these great things. I tell you what, I'm excited about it. I want to, I want to move forward with it. And they move forward with it. They may even join the church. They may even get dunked, baptized. And they think, well, here we are. And all of a sudden, it just wanes. There's nothing to it. It's just there for a moment. It looks just like everyone else who may have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. It looks, it looks the same, but it, takes, it does not take hold. He's saying there's a difference here. It, it, it's not salvation, basically. It's, it's not a work of God. Verse 14, now the one that fell among thorns are those when they heard go out and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of life. And bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Here's what I believe verse 15 is trying to help us understand. This whole idea between Logos and Rhema. That there is the good ground. That's describing our heart. Okay? Are, are, are we, is our heart fertile? Is it really welcoming the seed? The seed's the word of God. The word of God itself is logos. But when it becomes a part of us, it's rhema. It is a specific word for you, for me. And it's received. That's when you see 
the good things he's talking about. So the first three that he names here, they just heard it, and it had no impact in their life, okay? The last one, they heard, they welcomed it as a specific word for them, and their lives were never the same. Never the same. Now, turn to Acts chapter 8. Now, let me just say this as you turn. I don't know if you know this, but um, as I'm preparing a sermon each week, and I've talked to other pastors, and some of our own pastors think the same way. As we prepare those words, our prayer for the words that we bring you each week, we try our best to keep our opinions out. We try to keep the world's uh, uh, philosophies, the, all those things that are out there. We try to let God's word speak for itself. That is our attempt because we know when this word, when this word is accurately divided, when it's accurately preached, it has power. And we pray that God takes the Logos, that we expound the Logos in such a way that it can become the rhema word of God for you. That each week when you come in here, you walk away and you're not quite the same because you welcomed it. Because you desire what it demands. Because you want to be inspired by it in such a way that your relationships change. Your world change. And every week, just a little bit more change, a little bit more change, a little bit more change. And listen, that can happen right here in this room. It can also happen here in connect groups. You know when a lot of this has happened for me? A lot of it has happened in a setting like this. And you're going to say, well, here he is with the connect group thing again. I am. I'm getting ready to say it. It's when you get in there with other people and you're able to accurately discuss God's word and someone help, is helping you lead you into the discoveries of God's word. That's the most powerful thing that you can ever experience. The most powerful thing you can ever experience is when the word of God, the Logos, becomes the rhema in your life. And it speaks to you in a very specific way. How many of you have ever showed up at church before and you left there and said, that word was for me? That's rhema word. That, that's for you. That's what it's all about. Now, I want to show you something here. Acts chapter 8, familiar story. Verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Philip was a, a flaming evangelist, so to speak. I mean, he was out there. He was telling people about Jesus. And the, spirit, the angel came to him and said, Arise and go toward the south along the road, which fell down, uh, which, came, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That's kind of interesting. Gaza's in this, isn't it? This is desert. <laughs> okay? This is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge over all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. It's almost like he was coming to find the truths of Jerusalem, the truths of the God that they serve. He came for that specific reason. He was looking. He was seeking. And then it says he was returning and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, what's interesting is he went to Jerusalem. He went there to, to worship God. He evidently, don't, don't know how that worked out for him, but we do know he got back in his chariot. He's headed home. And all of a sudden, he's so curious, he begins to read in what would have been probably the most read book in all the, of the Old Testament, Isaiah. 
most people say it was almost in every synagogue back then. And so he's reading this. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? Now, here's what you got to understand. He's reading Logos. What's he reading? He's reading the word of God. Okay. And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me, he's basically saying, I'm not sure what I'm reading. How many of you read the Bible and saw the same thing? We've all been there. Okay. And then he says, and he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture, which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shear is silent as he opened not his mouth. Now, who do we know this is talking about? It's, it's talking about Jesus. It's a prophecy written 600 years before Jesus, and this describes him perfectly. And again, what is this? This is the Logos. The Logos. In his humility, his justice was taken away, who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered and said, uh, answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this is, of himself or some other? course, we know it was Jesus, right? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, Logos, preached Jesus to him. Now here's the key. Here's what you got to look at. He took Logos, you go over here to Isaiah. He took Logos and from Logos, from God's word, he began to expound on Jesus. Now, how was he able to do that? Because the word of God for Philip had already moved, listen, from Logos to Rhema. He'd received the message of Jesus in his own heart. That was a word that was given to him. The New Testament wasn't written at this time. There was nothing written down at this time. And so all of a sudden, the Rhema word of God was there. And so basically, Philip went from, took him from where he was speaking in the Logos, just reading the word, to the rhema. But the only way that happened was Philip had to have already been from Logos to rhema. You see what I'm saying? It was a word for him. That's how he came to salvation was by way of Jesus Christ. Okay? So then, now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? So he's basically looking at Philip and he's saying, okay, we, we've looked, you've told me about baptism, you've told me about all these wonderful things, okay, how, how, do, how do I get on board? Verse 37, then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Now what's he got to be believing in? The story of Jesus. What did he preach to him? Jesus. He didn't preach the weather. He didn't speak about how Carolina's five or six and oh. He, he, didn't, he didn't speak, those are good things, by the way, but, but he, didn't speak, he didn't speak those things to him. He, speak, he spoke Jesus. And then he, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. At that moment, you know what happened? Logos became rhema. There was an investment in such a way that came into his heart that it wasn't just something that was sitting out there. It was personalized in his heart in such a way that he will be changed forever. And that's what the rhema word of God does. 
it changes us. It transforms us. You see, when it, came, when it comes to the spirit, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, the logos word must become the rhema word to us. If we have any hope, first of all, in our salvation, but secondly, in this battle that we're facing, we got to know what God's word is. We got to know. We got to experience it. We got to be able to take the sword of the spirit and use it in the right way. And that's how we understand his word. But then there's the conclusion. In Ephesians chapter 6, if you, if you look over in Ephesians, we keep emphasizing verses 10 through 17. Did you know verse 18 is pretty important itself? Listen to what it says. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take up all these things these things are going to be a part of us. We've got our armor on. But what also does he say is very important? Prayer. Prayer. I, I can't be a warrior out there just kind of doing my own thing, killing who I want to kill, whatever. Where am I getting my command from? God himself. And, and look what he says. He says, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. I'm not only praying about my battle, I'm praying about your battle. I'm praying about when the enemy comes your way and attempts to bring deceit in your life. Let me tell you one thing you need to be praying about. You need to be praying for your children, your grandchildren. Your children and grandchildren are dealing with more deceit that's in this world today than we ever, ever imagined in, our, in the world we grew up in. Prayer is important. Look at that statement. Even though the weapons are mighty, communication is essential to the soldier. So here's the application. This is how I want to close out the whole series. To be successful in the war, we must analyze our enemy. You do need to know who you're, who you're dealing with. You, you, you really do. Look at, look at Ephesians 6, verse 10 again. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of, who, of what? His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against who? The devil and his scheming. He's coming. I mean, he, it can't be any clearer than this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What we focus on is that person most of the time. What we focus on is this over here. We don't realize there's a whole thing that's behind the scenes that's being orchestrated by the wicked one. There's a whole, there's different levels to everything that we're facing. Now, some of you are like, you mean there's demons everywhere? The work is apparent. It's there. Am I saying you walk down the street and look for a demon behind every bush? I'm not saying we should live in fear. I'm not saying that and all that. But we do need to stand on the word of God. We still need to understand the enemy. We need to understand. We're fighting things that are beyond what, what, what you may be facing. You think about the fight you had with your spouse. How many of you ever had those fights with your spouse? You wondered, are we going to survive this? Been there. That woman who walked up here, she's definitely been there. But you know something? It's only when we realize <laughs> that the enemy wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy where we can find the greatest joy. The greatest joy in this world is to live the word of God. And he wants to destroy that for you. The greatest peace we could ever 
ever have will come by way of what Jesus Christ provides for us on the cross and living out that word. And he wants to destroy that peace. He wants to destroy you personally. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your children, your grandchildren, and he'll do everything he can to see that accomplished. And let me just say this. Based on what I'm seeing in this world, he's making a lot of headway. And I'm convinced it's because people don't really see what's really happening. we got to wake up and see what's going on. We need to analyze our enemy. And then secondly, utilize our weaponry. Look, look at this picture again of the soldier. If you'll look, uh, I mean, look, look at this. I mean, he, he's, he's got it all on. It's all right there. We got to understand what does this mean? And that's been our attempt over the last five or six weeks, is if we understand that. What's he, what does he have on? Look at what he's got on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We got to know what we have at our disposal. And then lastly, realize our victory. The Bible says in Romans 8, yet in all these things, all these things that could possibly come against us, and he's got several when he mentions them in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're more than conquerors. Let me ask you a question. When you leave here today, are you going to stand up suited up and say, here I go to face the world? Now, don't challenge the enemy to a battle. Only the fool would do that. We are to stand our ground. We are to stand and not fall. You see, so many times we think the opposite of standing is moving either forward or backwards. No, the opposite of standing in this context is falling. It's, it's, not, it's not stand or move. No, it's stand or fall. And I've seen so many people fall. And it affects more than you ever can imagine. So where are you? I want to close, as we do close this series out, I want to close not only praying for you, but we also need to keep in mind, we need to pray for what's going on in the Middle East right now. There's a lot at stake of what's going on right now in the Middle East. And, and, and we need to pray for, for Israel. We, we need to pray for those who are in the path of war. We need to pray for that whole situation. But, but I believe God's word, if you look at it in its entirety, we, we definitely need to be praying for Israel. Would you go with me in prayer at this time? Father, we just come to you now. And, and Lord, I just thank you for our journey through the armor of God. We thank you so much for these things that you give us. I pray, Lord, it's not just words on a page that we read. But there is, is, is words that, that are implanted in our hearts, that we welcome it, that we get to a point where we have a desperation for it. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it's more powerful than any two-edged sword. I, I thank you for the way that it, it, it can be used in our lives to bring uh, comfort, to bring uh, uh, peace. But, Lord, it can also mean and bring victory. And help us to realize that we're fighting towards in victory. We're, we're not victims here as those who believe in you, as those who have trusted you with our lives, as those who are followers of Jesus. The victory's already been won. It's just a matter of walking in that victory. 
And I pray as we leave here today that we'll understand the importance of that. That we'll understand there's so much more than we could ever imagine behind the events of our lives and how we need your armor. Father, I pray for the nation of Israel right now. I just pray for all those leaders. I pray for all those who are involved, that you just do a work in this situation, Father. You, you know that, that many people would say that Israel's the timepiece when it comes to your word and when it comes to end-time prophecies and all these different things. Father, I just pray for what's going on over there, Lord, that your will will be magnified in all this, Father. Lord, we just again thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for being here this morning. <clears throat>